The investigation into Jim Melgar's murder was quite literally laughable. In a recent interview with 2020, a Houston reporter stated that there was audible laughter in the courtroom when the Harris County Sheriff's Department members were testifying about their not-so-thorough investigation. I think that we've proven at this point that, right or wrong, the detectives who were charged with finding Jim's killer and bringing him to justice had blinders on from the very beginning of their investigation. The moment that Sandy Melgar told police that she couldn't remember what had happened the night before, Maurice Carpenter, Sergeant Doucet, and Detective Carazal honed in on her with laser focus. It's been my position from the outset of our investigation that this case was flawed from the very beginning. Harris County's tunnel vision led investigators to ignore any and all evidence and leads that pointed away from Sandy Melgar. This was a case that should have been, and could have been solved, had the detectives approached it with any amount of objectivity and let the evidence drive their investigation, rather than their early theory. The prosecutor on the case, Colleen Barnett, has stated repeatedly that there was nothing missing from the home, and therefore there is no evidence that anyone other than Sandy could have been present and murdered Jim. But today, I'm going to prove to you that that couldn't be further from the truth. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. In this episode, you're going to hear directly from the person at the very heart of investigating Jim's murder, his only daughter, Liz. While the Harris County Sheriff's Department searched to find a way to charge her mother with this crime, it was Liz and Sandy, and them alone, who were trying to find justice for Jim. It was Christmas Eve in the UK when Liz received the phone call that would change her life forever. And I had just flown back to England to spend Christmas with his family. And I had just gotten out of the hospital for a second time, this time in England. And uh, the morning that I found out, I thought people were just trying to get in touch with me because I had been in the hospital for a miscarriage. And I thought people were, you know, you know, they were telling me they loved me and that they were there to support me. And so I thought people were just reaching out because of that. And um, one of my old friends called me and let me know what had happened. I mean, he didn't have many details, but he let me know what he could. And then after that, I just started making phone calls and looking for tickets to get back home. Liz and her husband boarded the first available flight back to Houston. The flight was long and seemed even longer as the news about what had happened to her father was working its way through Liz's mind. Reality set in when she finally arrived in Houston exhausted and jet-lagged. We got off the plane around 2.30, and my cousin had offered to pick us up from the airport. 
And when I opened the door to the car, it was her, another cousin, and my mom in the back seat. And yeah, seeing her was a huge relief because she was alive and she was well enough to be there when I got home. But it also really hit home for me that I wasn't gonna be seeing my dad anymore and he wasn't going to be the one picking me up from the airport ever again. Liz and Sandy spent Christmas together at a family friend's house. They remained by each other's sides all night, grieving, mostly in silence. Then the next day, December 26, Liz reached out to Detective Carazal. We were staying at one of my mom's best friend's house, uh, the one that picked her up from my parents' house. I, I grew up with that family, so they invited us to stay there while we were getting everything ready for my dad's funeral and, you know, just taking care of everything. And the guy that lived there, the husband, he, he just came over and he gave me one of the detective's cards and said that I thought I might want this and that, you know, they might want to hear from me. So actually, he's the one that suggested I get into contact with them. And so I gave him a call and asked him if they had any questions for me or if if they needed to talk to me about anything. And I had a ton of questions just because, you know, I got there on Christmas Day, although I didn't meet up with them until the next day. But at that time, I didn't want to ask my mom what had happened because, you know, she was already traumatized. She was already completely in shock. I just, you know, I didn't want to make her talk about it before she was ready. So a lot of the questions I had, I thought, the cops would be the best people to answer. But I, you know, it turns out I was completely wrong about that. So when you got the police on the phone, what what was your interaction like at that point? Did you feel like they were trying to help? At that point, they seemed a bit confused as to who I was. But once I just, you know, I explained who I was and when I, when I arrived and that I wanted to ask them a bunch of questions, they asked me to come down to the station. And... I just, I was completely uncomfortable with that. But yeah, I just, you know, I had to ask them to come to me, not only because I didn't have a car, but uh, I was just more comfortable with them meeting me at our friend's house. Carazal and Doucet made the arrangements to meet with Liz at the friend's house early in the afternoon on the 26th. This is Sergeant Doucet's note regarding that interview. Wednesday, December 26, 2012, 12.06 p.m. On the above-listed date and time, Deputy R. Carazal and I met with Elizabeth Melgar, complainant's daughter, for an interview in Houston. During this interview, Elizabeth Melgar said that she and her husband had flown in from England after hearing of her father's death. Elizabeth Melgar was requested to make a list of any missing property from the complainant's residence, and she agreed to do so. The interview was recorded and synopsized by Deputy R. Carazal. As Liz was getting more and more information about the events and police interactions on the night her mom and dad were found, she was feeling less and less trusting of the police officers investigating the case. And because of that, she asked them for permission to record her interview. During our discussion earlier this week, I asked her why she thought it was necessary to record it. When I found out about all of this, when I woke up on the morning of, I think it was the 24th, 
you know, I was asking my family where my mom had gone because nobody knew where she was. And, you know, I was I was worried about her well-being. My father had just been killed and I had no idea how my mom was doing physically or mentally. So I was desperate to find her. And my family had said that the police told them that they would be taking her to the hospital to get checked out. But they were really evasive about which hospital they were taking her to because my family wanted to go with them. And then, you know, after talking to my mom, she let me know that she was taken directly to the police station and that, you know, she was questioned there for several hours and that no medical personnel had ever really had checked her out thoroughly. And so when I spoke to the police, they told me that she had been checked out on scene by a doctor that had gone there with EMS, which I knew was a lie because I had done my clinicals with that exact station that that responded to the 911 call. And so just, you know, just the way that they were able to lie to my family about that and then lie to me about the doctor checking out my mom. You know, I already had a bad feeling about it and I just thought it'd be better to have some records since I didn't have a lawyer there. Corazal granted Liz permission to record the interview. And this is the original audio, right after a short break. December 26, 2012, case number 12176269. This is Sean Kears with Harris County Homicide, 60 Henry 42. Currently at the address of. Uh, also with me is my partner, Sergeant Doucet. And I'm going to let the other two witnesses here identify themselves. Ma'am, can you identify yourself with your date of birth? Um, Elizabeth Melgar, the. Okay, and this is your husband? Yeah. And your name? Anthony Rose. Uh, my birthday is. Okay. And you're from where? Uh, the UK. Okay, okay. And y'all both live there? Yeah. At, at, uh, and you flew in uh, yesterday? Yes. That's right. Okay. Both y'all did? Yeah. Okay. What time did y'all fly in yesterday? We got in about 2.20. I can get you the flight number if you like. Yeah. We'll get, we'll get all that a little bit later. Okay. Uh, and your father's name is what? Jaime Melgar. Okay. And your mother's name is what? Sandra Melgar. Okay. Uh, how did y'all get the news that your father was deceased? Um, uh, a friend of mine that I've known for years, who used to live in Houston, now lives in Holland, or is originally from Holland. He must have heard it, I don't know, I think he heard I, it through another friend of ours yeah. who still lives in Houston, and he, we're very close, so he called me, or he called my husband to talk to him. Okay. Everyone was trying to get a hold of me by Facebook and email. And what did they, what, I, I just want to know how much information did you know, actually, what do you know? I know what I saw on the news, um, just there was a home invasion, I've been in touch with the medical examiner's office, um, I know he was stabbed to death in his closet while my parents were tied up. Have you talked, spoken to your mother? Yeah. Okay. Is she here today? Yeah. 
What, what did your mother have to say? Um, she's just in complete shock. She said that, um, she knows when she has a seizure because she gets these auras, and then afterwards she gets this, I, I would be very good at describing it, she'd be a lot better at that, but, um, she can just tell when she has a seizure. She's, like, in a postictal state is what they call it, and, um, she has retrograde amnesia at the moment. She just she has a hard time remembering things as it is because of the seizures. She's got a well documented history of lupus and epilepsy for the past twenty something years. Okay. Um, and she basically just told me that the police. Well, she woke up and she was trying to sit up and get out of the closet, but she has had hip replacements and she has a lot of joint problems, so she really couldn't move and she didn't know how long she had been there. So. Okay. Yeah. Uh, a little bit more, I guess, the, the illness that she has, do y'all know what doctor she sees and all that? I mean, how long has she had that? 20-something years. 20 years. She's seen different doctors. I mean, she said that the police took her in. Well, she's, they told my family that they were taking her to the hospital, and I spent hours calling hospitals trying to find her, and it turned out that they didn't take her there. They wouldn't give her her medication, and she was there for 12 hours. And stress brings on seizures, and so does lack of sleep. Okay. So I was a bit worried about her health. Um, she's quite in a quite fragile state right now. Okay. You you, you do know that we had EMS and all that check her out. She's on her medication. Right. And but that that was the issue. We didn't know. I guess what you were explaining the whatever she was in, what was she was needing, all that stuff. And we're trying to get the doctor and everybody's information from her. Yeah, but and we you don't. Can. We don't have it. Yeah. You can't because. She but EMS, but the doctor and them that that saw her there at the at the scene, they had cleared everything before we even spoke to her. How can you clear if you don't understand her? Um... They did. They did. They, they they we would have let her gone from that point on. We had, they had somebody there the whole time. But do you, do you know your your mother's doctor's name? She's. We, I have lupus as well, and when you, you switch doctors a lot, you, you have a rheumatologist, you have a general practitioner. Um, there is, I do know the doctor that originally diagnosed her, who she still is very, like, she used to work for him, She's, she still does work for him, well, did his billing and coding. Um, I can get you his information because he has some of her medical documents. Sure. Okay. When was the, the last time you talked to your mother? Today. I mean, I mean before. This. I talk to her every day. You talk? Did you talk to her on Saturday? Okay, well, when I say every day, I mean nearly every day. I tried to talk to her every day. No, I didn't talk to her. I think the last time I talked to her was Friday about, or no, Thursday about work. I just said I did my work. Can you please put some money in my account? Okay. Thursday. <clears throat> and how about your father? We. We don't talk that much. Okay. Uh, we, we have been emailing a bit. I think the last time I heard from him was maybe a week ago, a week and a half ago. When yeah. did we get to England? When we were in Geneva. No, in England. Oh, in England. Um, so we flew... What day did we fly? So the 7th is when you were in hospital in France. It was a week after that, right? So we must have left around... No, in England. Yeah, no, I'm saying we must have left Geneva around the 15th. So it'll be sometime after that. So, yeah, we were in Geneva. I worked in Switzerland so we were there until around the 15th then we flew to England so it'll be somewhere around the 16th 17th 18th between that time I spoke to him a couple of times via email yeah. okay around around that sort of day and 
you understand that we're not pointing fingers at anybody here. We're trying to we're trying to get as much information as we can because it's either way. We have either we're looking at a possible suspect entering no, the I, home, and we're we're trying to look at every op any angle here no, in this I investigation. No, I understand. Yeah. I just don't appreciate the way my mother was treated. Like that, she was. I mean, she said that the police were based were just saying, "We know you did it." Was he abusive? Was he having an affair? Was this happening? Was that happening? No. Then, here's the here's the deal. The questions are asked. Okay, but you have to remember, and it's how somebody perceives the question. We have to know if somebody was out to hurt your father. Yeah. Okay, and the way you take that question is the way, you, however you're going to take it. But that's our job. We have to figure out no, I understand who that, killed him. No, because at this, do, yeah. But I'm, at this point, you know, I need to know everything. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Because anything that helps me and my partner out, we have to find out who it is. Okay. Because if he had a girlfriend, I know it's a rough question. Who wants their dad to have yeah, a girlfriend? Yeah. We have to know. Yeah. Because what if the girlfriend's husband yeah. snuck yeah. in there and hit your mother and knocked her out and threw her in the closet and went right after him? Yeah. Because your mother's alive and he's dead. Yeah. So whatever it is, it's targeting your father. I think she, um, she probably had a seizure and that probably freaked out whoever was there. And maybe they thought they killed her by hitting her on the head. I don't know. Well, I mean that could be the, that could be the case, and that's why I, I need to know like when her condition. And I'm not saying that she could black out and all that stuff. It, she, it could happen, but I need to know if she's ever going to remember it. Yeah. Because if she could ever remember a suspect, that's the best thing for me no, and him. I agree. Yeah. Because then we have a description and everything else. Right now, at this point, we I've have been nothing. Asking, I've been asking him, trying to. And and I mean, I, and I understand, and I understand your that your mother's health and all that, and. We are too, but we're trying to solve the case, no, I yeah. and I'm trying to look for answers. Just that anything that can help us out, because of now we don't know. Yeah, I know. Okay. We know nothing. Okay. And everybody is a suspect at a point. Yeah, I understand. Uh, but we have to go through, get her out of the way, figure out if the talk to the doctor that she uses. Will she ever remember it? And I know you know a lot about the condition, but I need to hear it from an expert, yeah. like a doctor. Will she ever remember? Is there anything we can do to help her remember? Because there might be something that they can send her to that can they can help her out to remember. I don't know. She, because she doesn't remember to. large portions of her life, like um, of her own childhood. You know, she's, it's really, I mean, she's some, she won't remember a movie that I've put on for her. If she wants to watch it again, like, let's watch this movie. Well, we just watched that last week, Mom. You know, she's... Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping that that's, I'm hoping that, I was hoping that that wouldn't be the case. No, I was hoping I that she would be able to say, well, you know, maybe she's after, just, after time or whatever. It seems that she's just undergoing some post-traumatic stress as well. I mean, maybe maybe something will be jogged in her memory later. It's hard to say. It's hard yeah. to and, say. and you're going to be the one that she's going to come to. No, I know, yeah. And so if she does, then we need to keep in contact. Because she starts definitely. remembering details, and it's going to help us I'll out. Definitely you need, yeah. Uh, so we'll just we'll try to get the doctor's information from you. At whenever you can. Okay. Uh, another thing we need to, to, I guess, establish is: Are there any items? Have you been to the house? No. Not yet. Okay. Because I'm trying to. We're trying to figure out what but items I, are missing. I can tell you what's. I mean, I'm. Ha I. I would like to go back to the house. She doesn't want me to go back to the house. Um, so I'm just respecting her wishes. She, I, I know it's been clean now, so I think she'd be more open to letting me go. We do plan on going in the next. I have to go there to get some clothes and stuff because we just rushed over here, so I have to go there anyway. But um, 
do me a favor when you're there. Get a tablet out. Anything you think's missing, because we need to start searching for the items that are missing. Well, so, you know, I somebody mean, came in and stole it. I know her jewelry's. I know some of her jewelry's missing. I know her phones are gone. I don't know if you have them or if we have the phones. What about the computers, phones. the laptops? We have computers and laptops. Yes. Um, there's several laptops in the house. Several don't work or aren't. That's also a desktop computer. Yeah. That probably went with us too. Okay. Yeah, they probably have. There's a there's a TV in her room, a flat screen TV. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that might be gone. Okay. There'll be a reasonably large amount of prescription medicine for yeah, obvious reasons. Yeah, hydrocodone and things like that. Medications you know, for her pain. Yeah. Um. Probably diazepam, things like this for pain and seizures. Um, I, I was under the impression as well that you guys didn't find a gun. But there was a gun. My dad had a twenty-two. Uh, no, we found. Yeah, they oh, found, you found, we found the gun. Oh, okay. So uh, any, any items that like weapons like that, we will take yeah. like a gun and stuff just because. Well, we I don't just know. want to make sure you have it. We have yeah, it. that's They the don't thing. have it. At last I know, because we we were doing interviews and we have another set of uh, homicide investigators that do the scene. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. Um, I had a guitar, Thunderstrat, and uh, I don't know if that's still there. I had, you know, this well, let's just do this because you know we can't hear recording and all this. But yeah. We won't get a whole lot of detail about the crime scene, but we'll just do this. Once you go to the house, bring a tablet, make a list. Okay. Because if anything, like this is what we'd be looking for. If somebody come in and gonna steal stuff, if you have old TV, uh, the manuals to them that has the serial number, oh, I see. anything okay. like that to it, bring it all to us because we can start searching for those items if they've been pawned. Yeah. They've been sold. My dad is so meticulous. He has all that. I'm sure he has all those things in Good. his house somewhere. Very well organized. Very Good. Well organized. We'll see. And and how how your mother and father's relationship? How's it been in this Great. past? Great. Okay. They've always. I mean, they were just celebrating their 32nd wedding anniversary. We were over here only a couple months ago, and it was just okay. a lovely environment, isn't it? I mean, do you have anything else? Pardon me. Okay. Alrighty, it's uh, 12 30. These are Carzal's notes on the interactions with Liz on December 26 in the interview that you just heard. Wednesday, December 26, 2012, 12 a.m. Elizabeth Melgar. I received a phone call from Elizabeth Melgar. She stated she would like to speak with investigators about the murder of her father, Jamie Melgar. I advised her we could meet at the homicide office, and she stated she would call me back. 11.31 a.m. Elizabeth Melgar. Elizabeth Melgar requested to meet at her friend's home. Elizabeth Melgar asked if she needed an attorney, and I advised her she was not a suspect, and I needed her help to list the items stolen from her mother and father's home. I advised Elizabeth that if she wanted an attorney present, she could do so. Elizabeth Melgar stated she only thought she needed an attorney because of the way we treated her mother. Elizabeth stated her mother never received medical attention while on scene. I advised her that emergency personnel on scene attended to her mother. I advised Elizabeth that I asked her mother at the scene if she needed additional medical attention, and she told me no, she already received medical attention. 12.06 p.m. Sergeant Doucet and I arrived at the location and met with Elizabeth Melgar and her husband, Anthony Rose. Upon speaking with Elizabeth Melgar, she requested to record the conversation. 
I advised her that she would be able to record the basic conversation, but would not be able to record details of the investigation. Elizabeth Melgar agreed and provided an audio-recorded statement. Interview with Elizabeth Melgar and her husband, Anthony Rose Elizabeth Melgar and her husband, Anthony Rose, were living in the UK when the incident occurred. Elizabeth Melgar stated they arrived in the U.S. on December 25, 2012 at approximately 2.20 p.m. Elizabeth Melgar stated her mother, Sandra Melgar, was in shock and possibly had a seizure. Elizabeth Melgar stated her mother, Sandra Melgar, has lupus. Elizabeth Melgar stated Sandra Melgar told her she remembered waking up and trying to sit up. Elizabeth Melgar stated Sandra Melgar had hip replacements and could not sit up. Elizabeth Melgar stated the items missing in the home were a television, medications, computers, a gun, and Elizabeth Melgar's guitar. End of the summary. Elizabeth Melgar agreed to inventory the items possibly missing from her home. Note, I advise Elizabeth Melgar the gun, cell phones, and computer were collected by a crime scene unit. 12.59 p.m. Ducey and I departed from the home. This wasn't the last contact that Carazal had with Liz on the 26th of December. At this point, Liz had not been to her parents' house yet. Shortly after the officers left, Liz headed over to the home on Kelsey Meadows Court. So we decided to go to the house that evening because the police had asked me to walk through the house and try and make a list of things that I thought were missing. So walking through the house, I could see that several things were missing the television, the the Xboxes. At the time of the interview, I had given the police some things that I had thought were missing just based on things that my uh, mom's friends had said to me when they went to pick up my mom. They let me know about the television. And then, you know, I hadn't seen my mom wearing her wedding ring. So I figured that was probably gone too. Uh, so I found it in the kitchen drawer, which, or the police found it in the kitchen drawer, which is where she would normally leave it when she was cooking. So yeah, after walking through the different rooms in the house, we eventually went to the garage because, you know, I knew my dad owned a lot of expensive tools. And, you know, while walking through the garage, I found two different bags that had been filled with various tools and hardware. And then I went to the toolboxes, which had been, you know, rummaged through, and it looked like some things might have been missing, but, you know, I couldn't be sure. Some of his larger tools seemed to be missing. And then once I made my way to the front of the garage, I noticed a backpack on the floor that was partially open. And called Detective Carousel and I let him know that I've, I've found this bag in the garage and they should probably come collect it since that's not where these things were normally kept. And the only thing I can think of is that this is something that was left by the people that broke into the house and killed my dad. Sergeant Doucet and Detective Carazal did return to the scene around 6 p.m. This is what Doucet wrote in his report regarding the afternoon trip back to the Melgar home. 4.36 p.m. We arrived back at the Sheriff's Department. Deputy Carazal advised that the complainant's daughter had called and she said she found a strange bag inside the garage at the scene. She said it contained an Xbox game system that did not belong to the complainant. 5.26 p.m. I contacted Deputy Campos and requested for him to meet us at the scene to collect the bag that Ms. Melgar spoke about. 6.03 p.m. Deputy Carlzal and I arrived at the scene located at 9538 Kelsey Meadows Court. 
and met with Harris County Sheriff's Office Crime Scene Unit Deputies R. Campos and T. Kirkley. Upon meeting with Elizabeth Melgar and her husband, Anthony Rose, Ms. Melgar said that upon looking further, she realized the Xbox and bag were property of the complainants. Deputies Campos and Kirkley processed the garage for latent prints in various locations. The evidence collected and processed was covered by Deputy R. Carazal in his supplement. 8.51 p.m. Deputy Carazal and I left the scene location. So when you initially called the police and told them about the backpack, Liz, why did you think that the Xbox in the backpack wasn't yours or wasn't your mom's? I'm not sure where that came from because I never told the police that it wasn't ours. I just knew that, you know, there was a black Xbox and there was a white Xbox. My my Xbox was the white Xbox. And I knew that that one was already missing because I hadn't seen it anywhere in the house. So at that point, I had given them the receipts and the manuals of the items that I thought were were missing. And did you tell them about anything else that was missing that you didn't have receipts for? Um. So... One of the items was the TV that went missing from their bedroom. I didn't have the receipt for that yet. Um, There were a couple of watches that were missing that I didn't have the receipts for. And I didn't have the receipt for my white Xbox. And there were also several narcotic medications of my mom's that had gone missing that I didn't have any documentation for at that point. Sean Carlsall wrote this in his report after the trip to the Melgar's home. 526 p.m. Crime Scene Unit. Sergeant Doucet requested Deputy Campos to meet us at the scene to collect the bag that Elizabeth Melgar observed inside the residence. 6.03 p.m. 9538 Kelsey Meadows Court. Doucet and I arrived and met with Elizabeth Melgar. She voluntarily signed a Harris County Sheriff's Office voluntary consent and search form. Voluntary consent for search and seizure for the residence at 9538 Kelsey Meadows Court. The consent was turned over to CSU Campos. Elizabeth Melgar provided items possibly missing from her home. Elizabeth located manuals for tools possibly taken from the garage. Listed manuals and receipts from the items possibly missing included an Amazon receipt for a Hitachi NT50AE gauge finish nailer, a rigid MS1050 compound miter saw, a rigid TS2400 table saw, and a Seiko quartz watch. Elizabeth Melgar advised her mother Sandra's wedding ring, father Jamie Melgar's wristwatch, and possibly her electric guitar from her room were missing. I searched the residence for the wedding ring and located the ring. The ring was in a drawer next to the kitchen sink. I requested crime scene to photograph and collect the ring. Elizabeth Melgar stated she was not certain the tools were missing. She had been away from home for several months. Elizabeth Melgar stated the Corona bottle inside the garage was possibly not theirs because her family does not drink Corona. Note. The Corona bottle cardboard case was on the garage shelf. Crime scene unit deputy Campos processed the scene by taking photographs and collecting evidence. I requested CSU Campos to collect Sandra Melgar's wedding ring inside the kitchen front left corner of the top drawer, located southwest of the sink. I requested CSU to process the garage for possible latent impressions. I advised CSU Campos that Elizabeth Melgar stated the Corona bottle possibly did not belong to them. The Corona bottle was processed for latent impressions. Elizabeth Melgar provided the addresses of the family's rental homes. 8.51 p.m., Sergeant Ducey and I departed the scene. At this point, it appears that Carazal may genuinely be interested in investigating the scene as a home invasion. 
He asked Liz for receipts for items that were missing, and Liz provided them. But as I read on in his report, Carslow wrote the following. Upon reviewing the crime scene photographs, I observed no absence of space inside the garage for the type of tools described by Elizabeth Melgar. Upon reviewing the crime scene photographs, I observed one Seiko Quartz wristwatch on the master bedroom nightstand. The Melgar's garage was full of tools and was arranged in such a way that, I'll use an expression common in the fire service, it was like 10 pounds of shit in a 5 pound sack. Meaning, there were more tools in the garage than there was space to neatly store them. There's just no way that anyone could look at the garage and know if anything was missing. There are a couple of empty spaces on shelves, which, considering the fact that every flat space in that garage was packed full of tools, should have been an indicator that something was missing. And aside from that, things are stacked up on top of each other, and the floor is also used for tool storage. And then there's the question of the watch. Liz says it's missing, and Carazol says that they have it. So in Carazol's report, he notes that uh, that they observed one Seiko Quartz wristwatch in the master bedroom nightstand. So was that the only watch that was missing? No, there was also there was also a Victor Knox and I believe a Rolex that went missing uh, that a friend of my dad's had given him. I think that his friend gave him the Victor Knox. So I emailed him and I asked him for a description and that I did give to the detectives at a later time. After Carazal leaves the scene on the 26th, he never makes any more attempts to get any further information from Liz or Sandy. Liz and Sandy, on the other hand, never stop trying to find Jim's killer. Liz was constantly calling and emailing the detectives, but no one seemed to be actually looking for the offenders. And eventually, Sandy retained an attorney for help. Weeks into the investigation, the attorney sent an email informing Liz that due to Harris County Sheriff's Department, quote, posture on the case, she needed to direct all communications through him from that point forward. Up to that point, the family didn't realize that the police were still looking at Sandy as a suspect. From that moment on, Liz continued to investigate her father's murder, but sent all information to their attorney, who then forwarded them on to Carazal. Yeah, after the day of the interview and going back to the house, I never heard from the police again. So I started looking into any possible leads or questionable emails or phone calls or, you know, just anything that I could get to the police. And at one point I was on Craigslist and I found a post with three of the tools that I believed had gone missing with photos that were being sold for like $200 for all of them. And uh, it was just really suspect to me. So I sent the links to the detectives and I never heard back from them. So once we, once my mom retained her lawyer, we were able to communicate to the police through the lawyer. So a lot of this information was sent back to the Harris County Sheriff's Department through the lawyer. So eventually I was able to get a copy of the receipt for the TV, the uh, 32-inch that was kept on the nightstand in my parents' bedroom, and that was forwarded on to the police too. And then after combing through um, some old emails, I was able to find the white Xbox's serial number from a time that I had to send it back to Microsoft for repair. Okay, and was that information also forwarded to police? Yes. To your knowledge, did they do anything with that? 
to my knowledge, they didn't do anything with any of the information that I provided to the police. Liz's white Xbox very well could provide us with a viable lead. Despite what the state has put forth, the Xbox absolutely was stolen from the Melgar's home. In further discussing the situation with Liz, she told me that she, and most people that use this particular model, played the gaming system online. Liz herself tried reaching out to Microsoft to see if they could track the console by using the serial number, but no one was able to help her, and neither the police or prosecution ever cared to try. So now I'm asking you for help. My hope is that someone out there listening right now has some information or knows of some way to track the location of Liz's Xbox. If at any time after the murder, anyone connected the game to the internet, there must be some way to track that. And if there is, we'll finally have a solid launch point to figure out who killed Jim Melgar. Grief is a complicated thing. Everyone handles it differently. But most people are at least afforded the opportunity to go through that process in their own way. Liz and Sandy Melgar have never been able to grieve Jim's loss. From the moment Sandy was cut loose from her bindings, she was treated as a killer and never as a grieving wife. And due to the tunnel vision of the Harris County Sheriff's Department, Liz was never viewed as a daughter who had tragically lost her father. Instead, she was considered an enemy of the state, an adversary to the police who were tirelessly trying to convict her mother. It's easy to lose sight of the fact that these are real people, human beings with real emotions. Sandy and Liz are affected by the actions of the police and prosecution and even social media. We're reinvestigating this case Because someone needs to. Someone needs to put an end to this six-year nightmare. How do you feel, Liz, through this entire process from the, the day you got back to Houston, two days after your dad was killed, the time before the trial, the trial, after the trial, up till now? How do you feel that you've been treated by the sheriff's department and the DA's office? Well, I feel that the sheriff's department completely ignored everything we had to say because it just didn't fit with their narrative and what they believed happened. And it's been incredibly frustrating as somebody who lost her dad to this brutal murder to be treated like this, just dismissed out of hand. It was, it's been frustrating every step of the way. It's been, it's been incredibly difficult and it really hasn't allowed us to, to grieve my dad's death the way, you know, the way that we should be grieving, you know, and once this was taken on by the DA's office, you know, we never, we never heard from them either. And we were never offered any uh, support or assistance as most victims are. We had to go to court every month to reset for three years, you know, while we were waiting for the DA's office to build their case. And just the stress that comes with that is indescribable. It's just a constant weight on your shoulders. 
You know, I, I felt that at trial, I was treated as a hostile witness, which was, again, really difficult for me to process, um, especially in, a, in such a public trial. And so after trial, things just continued uh, in the same fashion. I feel like it's been a constant PR battle with a lot of law enforcement trying to discredit or smear who my family were. Uh, and that, that alone has been very difficult because, you know, while we may know who we were and what kind of people we are, the public don't know who we are. And a lot of people are going aside with what they hear from people who have authority. And it's been really difficult dealing with a lot of the unprofessionalism from some of the experts that testified at trial. And even with the DEA's office releasing releasing documents to people who are trying to discredit me and my family. And then to do that while leaving a lot of my personal information unredacted, which has opened me to several blocked phone calls a day. And, you know, I, I had... I had suffered from PTSD before we had even gotten to this point, just because of everything that, you know, everything that happened with my dad. And now to know that they were negligent in the way that they released this information, to know that they let some of this information out there, you know, again, now I, I feel anxious and, and worried that somebody's going to come do me harm next just because all of this is out there now. My dad's killer is still out there. He still has every freedom and every opportunity to do this to somebody else. And, you know, I hope that for, you know, I hope that this isn't something that they do to another person's family. Because, you know, I just, I would not wish this on my worst enemy. This has been the most traumatic and difficult thing I've ever had to face in my life and I just wish that from the beginning things had taken a different path and that we could find this person and take them off the streets because I just I can't sleep at night knowing that this person is still out there. So moving forward Liz what do you want from the Harris County DA's office now? What I want is respect, honesty, and and objectivity. I want the DA's office to have a really good look at this case and be objective and look at the evidence. I just want to ask for the opportunity to prove who really killed my dad. All that I've ever asked for and all that I've ever wanted is justice for my parents. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Our Season 6 logo was also created by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our banner images and type font across all of our logos was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. 
Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Britta Bliss, Sarah Colby, Rachel Timberman, and Liz Rose. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 per month, and we also have reward levels on the Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod, and my personal Twitter handle is at bobruftruth. And for more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at truthjusticepod. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. game now jumanji just got real only at jessington world of adventures featuring daredevil dad mom on a mission and the kids who can't wait to ride the world's first jumanji roller coaster an epic adventure awaits world of jumanji only at chessington world of adventures book this summer's must-do day out at chessington.com